Do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Berzo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. We are at a telegraph stage of nutrition, and that means a lot of opportunities for companies. Join me in this wide-ranging conversation about the state of the nutrient density space, the research, but also all the companies who are working on it and in it. And what does it mean that we're only tracking 1% of the nutrient data on food labels? Does it mean we should wait until the science is completely clear? Or is there a lot of space for food companies, large and small? Yes, there's space also for large food companies that can already act and secure a leading role and position in a space that seems completely open at the moment. We also discuss why life cycle assessments, LCAs, are completely broken and what to do about it. And at the end, a fascinating insight about how the scientific community is acting non-scientific at all by demonizing indigenous regenerative perennial agroecology and regenerative agriculture. They're actually not acting scientific. Why? Because if they would be honest, their thesis that highly intensive very heavily chemically fueled agriculture is working, that seems clearly not the case, they should be looking at alternatives. And actually an alternative thesis is clearly there and has been there for many decades and in many cases, uh, many millennia, and they just don't take it seriously. If they would be a true scientist, they would be all over alternative thesis on how to grow food and feed the planet, but they're not. So that raises a lot of interesting questions. Join me in this fascinating conversation and I hope you enjoy it. What are the connections between healthy farming practices, healthy soil, healthy produce, healthy gut and healthy people? Welcome to a special series where we go deep into the relationship between regenerative agriculture practices that build soil health and the nutritional quality of the food we end up eating. We unpack the current state of science, the role of investments, businesses, nonprofits, entrepreneurs, and more. We're very happy with the support of the Grantham Foundation for the protection of the environment for this series. The Grantham Foundation is a private foundation with a mission to protect and conserve the natural environment. Find out more on granthamfoundation.org or in the links below. Welcome to another episode. Today with Regenerative Agriculture Consultant and Head of the Nutrient Density Alliance, welcome Tina Owens. Hi, Kuhn. It's so great to be here. I've been listening to this podcast for years. I feel like I've finally arrived to be speaking with you today. Thank you so much for those nice words. I, I would definitely say friend of the show. And uh, yeah, I can't believe we, we didn't make this happen before, but I think there's a, a really good reason to do it now. And that's the Nutrient Density series we're in the midst of and, and the work you have been doing, you are doing, and, and you, of course you uh, will be doing in the future. So welcome, first of all, but I want to take it a step back and start with a question that we always like to start at the beginning. How did you end up focusing on soil? What, what was your path towards uh, this very specific, I mean, it feels like a growing niche, but still a very specific niche of a niche within a food system? Yeah, thanks for asking. So um, it's, I would say my path to soil started in 2016 at a Green America Network meeting um, in the group that's now known as the Soil and Climate Alliance. Dr. Tim LaSalle from Chico State 
uh, was presenting on research related to um, carbon sequestration, soil health, and um, started talking about the research into nutrient density and finding that these outcomes were provable um, when focused on soil health happened. And, And two things happened. One, my uh, husband and I, uh, we, I'm from a multi-generational farming and dairy family. Um, we decided that we would try and figure out how we could integrate our own uh, farm into uh, this type of approach. And so we started uh, our small farm here in Michigan, where we focus on heritage pastured animals for nutrient-dense outcomes. Um, but more than that, I started contemplating the business the case and building the business case for bringing nutrient density to consumers, because this is a win-win in so many places for the marketplace, from scope three emissions to reduce risk in sourcing ingredients. My background is operations and supply chain risk mitigation for 15 years, um, all the way through to top line growth and consumer engagement, which some of my work at Kashi, um, over the decade that I spent working on that brand, I, I learned the importance of engaging the consumer in this space. And it remains unfathomable to me that some of the largest food companies have yet to shift their thinking enough to just harness the demand that's already waiting across the entire consumer food system um, as it relates to soil health and and things like nutrient density. So um, I can talk a little bit more about what we've done in partnership with the Soil and Climate Alliance at Green America um, around the Nutrient Density Alliance, but I'll, I'll kick it back to you for the next question. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I was going to double click on that sort of latent demand or demand waiting to be served. Uh, what makes you say that? What Because we all hope for that, obviously, in the space, like as, as long as we um, bring these uh, products grown with ingredients that come from farms that really focus on their soil health, uh, the demand will be there. And uh, what makes you say that there's this, basically, the demand is there, but it's not being served? Yeah, so several things, each of which folks can find on our nutrientdensityalliance.org website around um, the resources for the business case on this. Uh, since 2020, the organic consumer in the U.S., 83% of households um, purchase one or more organic product a year. In 2020, according to Hartman Research, they started showing that soil health, better ecology, better flavor, better nutrition – was a purchase driver for those consumers. Now, why those consumers matter is because they're the tip of the spear on where the mainstream food system heads next. So I learned this firsthand when I was working on Kashi and would see Special K lift our, our most successful launches under their own banner. Um, and, you know, Just take it people, more into Kashi, the mainstream consumer. What, yeah, Kashi's what, owned by Kellogg. And what uh, were you selling, making, producing uh, to have an idea of? Food-wise. Yeah, so cereal, um, snack bars, um, mm-hmm. hot cereal, frozen meals, etc. in the natural and organic and non-GMO okay. food space. Yeah, thank, thanks for that context. And so it taught me the role of this specific consumer set in um, showing that there's demand in this space that then the mainstream brands end up picking up and leads into their innovation calendars, etc. But beyond that, Spins, which is a U.S. company owned by IRI, which is all about point of purchase data, Spins has asserted that 66% of American consumers are purchasing based on health in the grocery store. And this is based on actual purchase consumption. So, so not what people yeah. say, because it's often very different yes. what people actually do. This is what people yes. actually buy and this, put in their, their grocery uh, basket. Their grocery yeah. cart. Exactly. And so um, if 66% of consumers are are purchasing based on health and the additional consumer data shows that um, the point of purchase uh, decision-making is around taste, health, quality, nutrition for consumers, well, guess what regenerative ag offers? 
taste, health, quality, and nutrition. And so all of the marketing signals are there. Um, what's ha- what's happening is that marketers are somehow believing that they have to convert people to a, a food religion that is regenerative agriculture in order to engage them in purchase intent around this. And we need to get away from that. We need to stop expecting to enroll people in a values movement in order to engage them in purchasing behavior based on their own critical needs around their health, their longevity, their fertility, their kids' ADHD, right? So um, there's a, a lot of research from both Nielsen, IRI, and uh, from Hartman, which are two major research houses that the CPG world listens to, showing that the consumer's not only here, but has been here for years waiting for additional solutions to come to market. And regenerative agriculture offers that sweet spot that covers all of those topics and more. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that and see where you want to take it next. And do you see that with the companies you know well, you work with that are part of the Alliance that have seen that success translate, like the demand actually translating into sales um, without maybe having to completely explain the full story of soil and all the, the other benefits of regeneration in general, because that seems to be uh, quite a quite a task to do that on a package in, in three seconds or less in a supermarket. Like, have you seen that um, some of the, let's say, quote unquote, success stories of, of this demand translating actually into sales um, compared to organic or, or non-organic? Because we've seen actually in Europe, quite a bit of organic suffering uh, lately in inflation and, and sort of uh, consumers starting to to choose on price, um, obviously in, in this kind of climate. Right. Well, I would um, point to a couple of positive uh, brands in the marketplace that have maybe not made regenerative the number one thing they're messaging on, but have made nutrient density the number one thing they're messaging on. So Good Culture, uh, which is a um, cottage cheese and dairy brand in the U.S., uh, when they uh, raised their Series C funding, um, they announced back in 2022, I think it was, that um, going forward, they were going to be focused on nutrient-dense categories uh, for their entire innovation and growth platform. They practice regenerative agriculture. They're working on how they weave those things together. Um, there's a lot of ins- what we call insurgent brands, you know, small brands that are looking to stake out the leadership space in the marketplace, like Big Picture Foods, Snacktivist, Quinn Snacks, White Leaf Provisions, where if you go to their website, you'll see that they have um, uh, wording around um, nutrition tied to regenerative agriculture. And so they're making that nutrient density uh, piece of regenerative agriculture, their their point of differentiation within the marketplace in order to get buyers at retailers to um, show that they have something additional to offer consumers and actually get that shelf space. And something consumers don't realize is, you know, um, retailers, grocers are actually the gateway, right? We, we tend to think of eaters as who we have to talk to, but in many cases, you actually have to talk to, yeah, yeah, you have to talk to the retailer. The buyers at the retailers are who's deciding what the consumer actually gets access to. And those folks are, are interested and, um, incentivized to find new and novel things to bring to consumers based on consumption behavior. And so really that's the gate that you have to get through is your shelf positioning whether or not they include you in their advertisements, whether or not they allow you um, specials or end caps or all the things that that capture consumers' uh, attention when they're in the grocery space that lead to not just sales, but growth in sales over time. Um, and so it's important that those stakeholders actually understand what's possible around nutrient density 
in order to create that pathway for consumers to purchase. Because right now, if you and I were to walk into a mainstream grocery store in the U.S. and find all the regenerative products, uh, we'd find Tazo Tea, which just went completely regenerative organic certified. It's owned by Unilever. We'd find the Do Good Dog from Applegate owned by Hormel and maybe some Pasture Bird owned by Purdue. Um, very little else in the grocery store at this moment is actually messaging on regenerative in the mainstream grocery space. So there's the entire market is almost addressable here in engaging consumers around regenerative agriculture and nutrient density. So those are just a few examples that come to mind. And how do we prevent that this is the next uh, fancy new thing that the, the buyers are, are choosing and in a couple of years it will be something else. I have no idea what it could be, but how do we make sure like this is a, um, not just the next uh, food hype that we had with superfoods or maybe still have in some places where also it was quote unquote focused on health, but of course never really materialized. Um, but how do we make sure this is a, a lasting thing in a landscape in a supermarket and big distribution, which is ever changing absolutely um, um, difficult to get in and to stay in like I, I, what is the key I'm not saying there is a key but what is the advice or the key there to you to make sure this is a lasting uh, let's say shelf battle we, we we win with some of these products yeah and there's only one answer to that it is the key and it's the consumer so currently the regenerative movement itself um, 58 of the top 100 food companies on the planet say they're doing something around regenerative. That's all the way from individual pilots up to, let's say, Nestle's 14 million tons, 50% of their supply went by 2030, um, or the acreage targets of Cargill, General Mills, Pepsi, et al. Um, they're thinking of those or they're, they're activating those is a better way to say it around back office uh, work like scope three emissions reporting, stakeholder management, farmer onboarding and supply risk mitigation, right? Um, procurement practices. They have yet to translate how those back office costs can actually lead to top line growth. And this is actually the key work that we're doing at the Nutrient Density Alliance is um, working within the quality and regulatory uh, space and the marketing space, which are key barriers to actually getting things like this to consumers on pack. Um, to show that uh, they can use the existing ingredient process, specification process, procurement process, and still pass through this meaningful difference for the consumer. And so, you know, you, you kind of touched on the, the corporate flavor of the month program. And having spent over two, two decades working in, in some of the world's largest food companies, I can tell you the corporate flavor of the month program exists for a reason. It's because once a program gets to be about three to five years old, which by the way, some of the first original regenerative commitments are now rounding that bend, bend of three, potentially three to five years old. Um, you know, you have management changes, you have budget changes, you have, um, uh, management consultants coming in, you know, trying to make their paycheck work where they're, they always have to have something new that they're offering, right? And so if we compare the regenerative movement to the organic and the non-GMO movement, both of which have been established enough that we can pretty much say that they're here to stay within the grocery store aisle because of, um, intense consumer demand that is from a specific segment of consumers that's not ever going to go away unless they literally have no money. Um, we don't see that same thing with regenerative. And so I, I get very worried when I think about the you know back office bean counting that has to happen on 
the overhead of having roles managing your regenerative agriculture program without that balance of the top line growth showing that there's a there there for the company to continue. And so without that consumer demand in the, as a market signal, it makes it feel riskier for farmers to move into this because what they have is a sharp corporate elbow telling them to do it for greenhouse gas emissions and scope three reporting, as opposed to this is where the market is headed. The demand is here and this is here to stay. So the consumer is the missing element from the regenerative agriculture movement in creating a safe space for consumers to eat food that is more nutrient dense, which they need for their health, longevity and fertility and farmers to feel safe moving into that space, irregardless of the um, uh, outcomes for climate change, I would say. Right. That even if you just looked at it strictly from a market force of supply and demand, there's enough reason here for companies to move into that space and start activating around consumer purchase intent. And you see the health angle as the key to unlock um, to unlock that consumer demand, basically. Uh, yes, absolutely. Because, um, you know, certain consumers will purchase uh, based on the certification that keeps the little girl in Ghana um, in, in, in the classroom, um, and uh, you know, not having to, uh, stay at home and, and, um, essentially, uh, not have access to education, uh, certifications like fair trade, et cetera. However, when the consumer is looking to save 10 or $20 on their shopping cart today because of other market pressures, they may be willing to sacrifice that because it feels like a problem that is distant from them, right? We, we keep trying to sell them on the farmer's on the climate, on the soil, on these other food values, when they may be having trouble meeting their own basic needs. But if they know that buying that product means that their kid who has a diagnosed ADHD will actually have a better day at school tomorrow because they can concentrate better than eating something that is more, you know, empty calorie or less nutrient dense, they will prioritize that purchase in a different way than if it's somebody else's child that they're impacting. And that's the part that we keep missing in having this conversation with consumers. Do you want to learn how to invest? Or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. And so how does that, if it does at all, like clash with the whole idea of fresh, like where does processing come into and, and how do you see that turning? Um, like what happens to the nutrients basically in processing? I think is a question like until it had, hits the supermarket aisle, um, apart from the fresh uh, place and even there, the fresh uh, aisle, a lot has happened in the meantime. Have you seen interesting work there to to preserve, basically, or to make sure most of these nutrients actually make it to my kitchen uh, kitchen shelf? Well, here's where we got to get a, a little bit wonky. So um, I like that. <laughs> two, so there's a bifurcated conversation here. Um, one is what we actually track today on side panels, which is one percent of nutrition. The other is what happens post processing. So let me let me tackle the one percent first. Um, in short, the tools that we have used uh, over the last 20 years to map our human genome and then the human microbiome are now being turned on the world around us, i.e. food. Um, and so the molecular mapping of food 
is happening as we speak. And nutritional dark matter is a uh, term that was coined by Albert Laszlo Barabasi, who's the head of the physics department at Northeastern, and he's a lecturer at Harvard Medical, right? So very credentialed in this area of health and the data. Um, and Nutritional so, dark matter, yeah. I nutritional think dark matter. David yep. Lazak's mentioned it six months ago or somewhere, but it's been yeah. a very intriguing term, yeah. Yeah, so uh, the USDA has for quite a long time tracked 150 uh, bioactive compounds that they determined as being key for human health. And those are things like, you know, vitamins, proteins, uh, amino acids, etc. Um, but uh, Barabasi's work, peer reviewed, published about four years ago, um, shared that there were 26,000 biochemicals in food, which would make that uh, 150 from the USDA 0 0.005 of of the current uh, compounds within food that are mapped. Well, since then, there's been additional molecular mapping happening, and now there's peer-reviewed research showing there's 200,000 to 300,000 biochemicals in food. And actually, friends of mine who own labs would say, well, no, Tina, there are millions of compounds in food that have yet to be mapped. And so you have AI coming into this space as well, where as these bioactives are mapped, they can be um, put into an AI system like what BrightSeed is doing, where you compare the bioactive compounds to all of the existing human health research to understand and hypothesize where compounds might be really useful for human health that need to be rewoven back into the food system or bright seed is actually going down the supplementation route but this this uh, opportunity stands for the industry corteva has mapped the oat genome at a um uh, at a level uh, that Pepsi and Quaker are using in order to understand how soil health and nutrition are tied to that molecular mapping. And then the periodic table of food initiative is being um, funded by the Rockefeller Foundation in conjunction with the American Heart Association and Bioversity CIOT. They're mapping human health outcomes tied to nutrient density for those bioactives that have yet to be found. Now let's go to processing. So Molecular mapping of food, we understand foods are starting to understand food at a parts per billion level, um, we'll go beyond the 1% of nutrition, you know, etc. Everybody asks this processing question, which I find quite interesting, because in most foods, that question does not get answered today. It, get it gets answered only if you're making a claim around um, a specific antioxidant or a specific gut health benefit, you have to demonstrate that that exists post-processing and that mm -hmm. it exists for mo most of the shelf life um, at a certain percentage of the shelf life that, of that product either being on shelf in the store or in a consumer's pantry. And so um, immediately people jump to this, well, what if there's more antioxidants in almonds, but then they get turned into butter that's heated and, and those antioxidants disappear? Um, those things aren't necessarily looked at today. So where this calculation happens in nutrition is actually based on the raw specifications of each of the ingredients coming in the back door of the uh, manufacturing facility and the quality and regulatory process within a company. It's a calculation that the USDA governs. Um, and then, of course, the FDA and USDA govern on PAC claims, depending on where you fall within the food system. Um, but very, very little of that um, information is focused on post-processing for food. So since we will now understand foods at a part per billion level, it's not just nutrition, but it's pathogens, pesticides, allergens, and adulteration. And within that, how we're actually um, 
negating some of the benefits we might have put in in the field that when you put it through an extrusion process or a hydrogenation process or something that's actually detrimental in processing the food, that those benefits actually disappear. I would say that's an end of the decade uh, thing that we might know. So we're in a crawl, walk, run phase. Crawl is <laughs> the industry does not even understand that soil health equals nutrition and that soil health impacts side panels. And so at the Nutrient Density Alliance, we are very, very keen. Sorry, what are side panels in this case? Oh, the, the side panel nutrition on a, a food product that you would purchase where you would ah, turn, okay. yeah. you turn the box over and you'd look for, you know, fat or sugar or whatever matters for your own diet. People but how do, do you fit three million know. on those on the box? Yeah, that's kind of tricky. <laughs> well, that's where that's where tech comes in. So you'll have wearables tied to your metabolic response. There's um, mass spectrometers and the potential to embed that within cell phones. Samsung actually had a patent that they got back in I think it was 2019 um, for an embedded mass spectrometer within a cell phone. And I tie this to a fun article from the New York Times from a couple of years ago, where they asserted that cell phones have become the refrigerators, essentially, they're now appliances. But if as a parent, um, you know, if I'm managing my own autoimmune disease, or I have a child who has allergies, or I'm managing some other health outcome, or I'm, mm -hmm. I'm pregnant, um, I might line up around the block to buy a cell phone that actually helps me understand what's in my food from a nutrition perspective because it meaningfully changes my quality of life. Today, I just upgraded my iPhone from an iPhone 6 to an iPhone 13. Cool, and it did not meaningfully change anything in my life, right? It was the it same. Made, it made recording this episode more difficult, you know. No, yes, okay. well, I, but, yeah. I had a I had a better battery life, right? And so never underestimate. Camera. Either, yeah, yeah still, and never. Yeah. Never underestimate the willingness of that industry to disrupt the food industry in order to get people lined up around the block again and drive their own sales. And frankly, I think we do actually need this level of tech interaction to understand the complexity of food and what it means for human health. And is it then safe to say, basically, we're really at the beginning, you were saying crawling, but like to understand yes. even the basics of nutrition, we're discovering it seems like every couple of years, other peer-reviewed papers come out. There's way more compounds than we actually counted before, but like a factor 10 or a factor yes. 100. Like yes. that's just not even, you cannot even imagine how little we know about all these interactions between them and how some of it ends up being more in food or less um, looking at the practices. So yeah. we're really, really at the beginning. So how can we then make claims when, it, when you, let's say you're running a food company, a small one or even a medium-sized one, and you're focusing on soil health and you're focusing on procurement, like how do you feel comfortable making any kind of claims if it feels like nutrition research is basically at its absolute infancy? I'm so glad you asked that. Um, well, and let's put this in, in really quick terms. Like if we know 1% of nutrition, we're not even at the rotary phone stage of nutrition. We're at the telegraph stage of nutrition, right? Um, but there's still certain compounds that um, consumers and companies, marketers, uh, researchers have been trained to focus in on, like, let's say protein in wheat or antioxidants in blueberries or amino, uh, uh, amino, uh, sorry, omega-3-6 fatty acid ratios within meat, dairy, eggs, et cetera, right? We already know that these things matter for human health. And in fact, um, antioxidants, polyphenols, omega-3-6, they don't even make it on the on the side panel. They're, they're sure. usually front of pack yeah. or back of pack things. And yet we as consumers know to seek those things out for purchasing, right? And so the bare minimum, and this is what we're after, we're after this foundational step, is if I have a regenerative wheat program, 
And so many growers in the in regenerative wheat have asserted something around the number of 40% higher protein in their wheat from regenerative practices. And Annie's, uh, Annie's mac and cheese owned by General Mills, actually, um, when they uh, launched the soil mac back in like 2017, 2018, they even there had was a moment their, they put like so yeah. important on like the yes. packaging and on the marketing. I remember, yeah. yeah. And their farmer um, Nate uh, Powell Palm or, or Palm Powell, I, I always get it mixed up. But Nate, their farmer, um, he had a video on Annie's site um, showing that uh, talking about the fact that he had forty percent higher protein in wheat. And there's other farmers even today that would tell you that there's this outcome. Well, the the companies that have these regenerative ag programs, even in wheat are not going back and seeing if they can segregate that wheat to create a specification specific to that protein level. And if they did, and they segregated it and had it go through into a single product like that Annie's Mac, they could actually use the same specification and certificate of analysis process that all companies use today on all lots, on all required testing um, within their specification process. And that would impact their side panel calculation if that protein was higher. Then you could say something on the back of the package, like we practice regenerative agriculture uh, uh, practices, and those lead to outcomes, meaningful outcomes and nutrient density. Check out our website to learn more about why there's higher protein versus our competitors or what have you. What we actually recommend is that people compare their nutritional outcomes on this 1% um, to the USDA standard. So if the standard for the entire market uh, okay. is X, and you're mm-hmm. seeing a 19% increase over the standard, talk about that. Talk about the Delta, right? Because you shouldn't, we don't want you to demonize your competitors. You, we don't even necessarily do want the you average. to yeah. yourself. Right. Yeah. Just go against the average and or yourself. Like say, Hey, we, how we sourced this last year versus how we sourced this this year led to 20% higher antioxidants in our almonds or something to that effect. Right. And in order to engage the consumer on the fact that soil health actually equals nutrient density, and it's not a religion, a food religion that we're engaging them in, it's just solid science based on real outcomes that the UNFAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, has been asserting since the year of the soils in 2015. And that going back to um, the 1960s, uh, Evie Balfour uh, you know, was writing about soil and mm. needing to do agroscience, uh, agromedical research 60 years ago because these things were not being covered by siloed thinking in the scientific um, uh, systems um, because we weren't looking at the connection between agri- uh, agricultural practices and med- medicinal outcomes. And so now here it is 60 years later. Are we going to listen to the lady or not? I think we have enough information that we know we need to act. Um, it's just a matter of helping people understand how they can use the existing food system to bring these things through to consumers and activate purchase intent. And you touched upon something and let me ask it just to be sure I understood, like how important is it to, um, keep like sort of, let's say you're, you're a big almond brand or an almond spread brand, and you're sourcing some of it from farms that really pay attention to regenerative outcomes and practices, et cetera. And some of it not like to keep it separate. How difficult is that for a brand and how essential is it? Because of course on the package, you want to show the Delta maybe to yourself, but it means that the almonds that are in that specific package have to be the ones that come from um, the the 17 or 19% or whatever the difference is uh, in that specific thing you're measuring. Like how tricky is that? 
<laughs> Welcome to my job for 15 years at Kellogg's and Kashi. Um, so you've got to have enough of the, uh, let's say an almond to make it through the minimum order quantity process. So it has to be enough to meet the shellers process, enough to meet the roasting process for the mandatory. So we're getting into the pro processing. Yeah. yeah. And there's our quantities. And there's, I, I, if I'm not wrong, we just had a current spring on the pot which probably I think is the first time I ever said pod podcast, sorry. Um, and which probably will be out around this as well, like minimum quantities for processing, at least in flour. But I think I'm imagining yep. many other things have become very, very concentrated big industries. So I, I guess that's not easy. Yeah, that was that was my whole role for several years was actually figuring that out so that we could make specific claims on products. And what I'll say here is there's another there's a second route, though. And that is what's currently called mass balance, which is Maybe it's only 20% of your supply web and that other 80% you're working to convert. Well, then you enroll the consumer in the journey rather than waiting for the perfect. So you may not be able, maybe there's enough in there that it meaningfully changes the uh, antioxidant level of each lot if you mix mm -hmm, it consciously. Mm -hmm. And that happens all the time, by the way, in grains, especially they mix yeah. lots in order to meet specifications. So this is not anything new that I am mentioning. Um, at, or you could talk about we source 20% of our almonds from this type of sourcing. We find that they have higher X, Y, and Z, and it may not be on pack. It might be on your website. And those are two different types of claims that are um, regulated in very different ways. So as long as you were actually doing the work in the field to have the specification and lot uh, certificate of analysis information to show that those things are true that you're asserting, that is the same way that those processes are run today. People do not need to reinvent the wheel on how they're passing through these things uh, to consumers. And in fact, telling them that you're on this journey and why it's important, I would say could actually increase purchase intent because consumers would want to see more of that, especially if they're noticing an impact to taste, health, quality, and nutrition, which are the purchase drivers that matter most for the industry. And then, of course, yeah, you get to a certain moment where that taste and the, nu the nutrients actually are going to change. That might be the tipping point. We don't know, uh, but it really depends, of course, on, on the ingredient, on the specific crop, et cetera, et cetera. So there are two routes, basically, or separate it out completely and, and uh, put the meaningful claims on the package um, that you can actually um, be sure that it ends up in that specific box or move the whole lot and, and communicate about it. But don't put it on the package necessarily, uh, but put it on the website uh, until you hit sort of the tipping point and flavor and nutrient density actually for the whole lot starts to change. Yep. Well, and I have an example from my past life that I can share that gets at the, the business opportunity here. So um, in brief, uh, when I was working at Kashi and we had the certified transitional program that was consumer facing that helped convert conventional acres to organic by sourcing only from farmers in that process of conversion. We launched Which is three one years. product. Yeah. Yes, three years. But really only two harvests, by the way, because the third harvest sure, is usually sure. organic certified. So I, I had a moving supply chain that was uh, took a lot of management on my part to keep it <laughs> rolling it and, and a lot of wonderful suppliers that helped us make that work. Um, and what we saw was we saw a values reset with our a key retailer that allowed us to have the rest of our, even though we we're only launching one SKU based on wheat in um, in the natural and organic channel, we saw a massive leap forward in our relationships with key retailers where the rest of our innovation got taken up at a bigger level. We got better shelf set, better ad positioning, um, more access to the buyers, et cetera, et cetera. We saw low or sorry, high single digit growth on our entire portfolio that first year after off of the launch of one 
product and one segregated ingredient. So I don't want people to think that, um, you know, this is only a single play for a single product. If you do this well enough where you engage the industry and the retailers in the transformational nature of what you're offering to consumers and give everybody that leadership edge to be able to tout with their own stakeholders, it can help transform demand for the rest of your portfolio. And there's plenty of innovation marketers out there who've seen this happen and know that this is true. They need to put this level of thinking into how they're talking about regenerative with consumers. And then what would be your, of course, we're we're not giving investment advice here, but um, I've always liked to ask this question and you're a listener of the show, so you know, let's say we're doing it to person it could be at RFSI or, I don't know, a pension fund conference or somewhere where the room is full of, let's say, financially minded people. Um, what would be your main message you would like them to walk away with? Of course, there's a lot of info we're talking, we're doing this live. So there's a lot of info, there's a lot of data, a lot of excitement. But if there's one thing they should remember, um, by put, which hopefully they walk out of the door and think differently of how to put their own money to work or the money they're managing, managing for other people, what would that one thing be? Yeah. So institutional investors, let's focus on them because they have a lot of clout within food companies. Um, and there's a lot of uh, foundational ownership of uh, food shares of entities that are working philanthropically around the world to try and mitigate climate change, hunger or health, but aren't bringing that demand to the door of their CPG of which they might own five or 10% share or more that the CPG has a regenerative ag program but they're failing to follow through on this promise of nutrient density for consumers. And so I would say it's a left hand not talking to the right hand. So if I'm an institutional investor, those 58 out of the top 100 food companies that say they're doing regenerative, I would start demanding shareholder resolutions that ensure that they're actually carrying through those benefits to consumers for the top line growth and not just the back office costs that are happening. The other side of this coin is that the entire market is currently addressable. So it's really about who wants to be first because Mm -hmm. you can carve out space in food service, in medically tailored meals, in home food delivery, in sports and music venues, in school lunch offerings. And that's before we even get to the massive ingredient suppliers feeding into branded products at the grocery store. And so it's really about which of the threads in the existing food system do you want to transform for this future food system state that helps maintain lower risk in your long-term investment because of the climate mitigation techniques in sourcing those materials in a climate-stressed world. Um, So you actually have products on shelf to sell, right? Um, That helps. Yes, it helps. And so, you know, thinking through this lens of the fact that having consumer demand and all of these different channels to pull from and creating that demand and or investment in innovation and or the launch of new companies that could be invested in by venture capital, the entire market is currently addressable. Which part do you want to carve out? Because right now you can capture the leadership space fairly um, easily from my perspective, if you have the right money and the right connections. And I think smart investors always ask this question, why now? I mean, you mentioned some of the research and some of the, the, the focus has been 60 years old. I think if you look at some of the papers that, that David and Anne Montgomery Bickley um, on, in What's Your Food Aid in the index, in the, um, uh, basically in the literature list at the back, in the back on the website, because it was too long, I think it goes back a hundred years in some cases. Like why, what is different now in 2023? And that we didn't know 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or even five years ago, why is that um, now actually addressable and, and not just wishful thinking? 
Yeah, well, and it's because we do have the science to show that all of these outcomes are real and we have the science growing on why soil health, uh, the mycorrhizal fungal community and all of these other things, how they're interwoven with human health. And so we're at a point where the momentum is so vast that there's no denying that these things are true. The only way that you would deny it is if you've deliberately stuck your head in the sand from learning these things. Um, and I, I actually want to point out something here that I get a Which lot. Which a few people I, are doing, but yeah. Yes, they, they are. And they're trying to claw everything back to that space. But, you know, if you, it, nutrient density is tied to mental health. Um, mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. it, you know, if you want fertility, if you want mental health within our populace at a global level going forward, I would hope that you would find that to be something worth investing in because by the way, those are your, your market bases. That's where your demand comes from. Um, there's a, an argument within this. That <laughs> this we, is very cynical, but very real. Yeah, yeah, no, but well, it's true. Yeah, yeah. I'm a realist, but there's one argument I wanna bring to the forefront that I get a lot and I, I've, I've dubbed it the scurvy argument. And it's, well, if we only know some of this and not all of it, why even bother bringing it to consumers? And I chewed on this a bit the first couple times I got it. I tend to get it in, in various different forums. And I tried to find a parallel in human health that I could bring to the forefront. And I started wondering, when, when did we don't know that citrus fruit actually impacted scurvy? And it was research that was done in the 1700s on you know sailors and the lack of vitamin C and um, that citrus fruit actually could help meaningfully with scurvy. And that's why oranges and, and citrus fruit started being shared on ships. Kun, do you know when we actually understood the metabolic pathways and all of the different ways that that actually works for human health and outcomes? It was the early 2000s. Yeah, and so, I read about that. So that's like yeah, 300 years late. Yes. And so the point is not why does it work? The point is that we know that it works. We may not know everything about why it works, but we've stripped these nutrients out of the food system um, bit by bit from a, a focus on quantity and not quality, why on earth would you withhold that information from consumers as you're adding it back in, that there's a benefit that they should be seeking out specifically in order to enroll them in helping with that food system transformation by shifting the forces of demand? That's where I'm at full stop. So I'm, I'm, I'm now at the point where that's the scurvy argument. Here's how silly this sounds when you say this out loud. And I don't want to make people feel silly, but I also want to nip this argument in the bud because it's not useful or helpful in this moment. It keeps us further uh, removed from the truth of what's happened in our food system. And it keeps consumers in the dark just a bit longer about what yeah, it feels like that. Actually, it feels like it's a deliberate strategy. I'm not saying the exact people that asked the question, but to just spread a bit more doubt to just delay a bit more, which is what we've seen before in yes. cigarettes, what we've seen before yes. in electric cars <laughs> or fossil fuel in general. Like, let's just do a bit more research because we're not 100% sure exactly how this greenhouse gas actually evolves. And that doesn't take away that we know enough to act. I think it was David Zacks and Mandy, yes. uh, Mandy, sorry, that wrote uh, that how human health nexus and regenerative agriculture, for sure I'm butchering the title. But anyway, they, they cl clearly said this is a couple of years ago, I think 2018, maybe. Yes. And they said, the we know enough to act. Yeah. Yes. The regenerative agriculture, human health nexus. I actually was fortunate enough to help David in researching um, that, that. Which is great. Like they said, we, yeah. this, this is what we know. This is what we're starting to know very soon and, and sounding, listening to you, it seems like we know a lot more now, but that still doesn't mean that we shouldn't act now, now, because we know enough that diversity helps and that this helps and, and this, et cetera, et cetera. Like we cannot wait for the perfect um, uh, be like, let the perfect be the enemy of the good, because we, yes. we know enough to act. And, and, and even if it doesn't have 
a miracle health outcome. It has a lot of other benefits and it yep. does help uh, with a lot of things. So I think it's an interesting argument, but I also always feel like, okay, who's trying to slow this down? And, and I'm imagining quite a few people are, this is a win, 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 but also lose, lose for quite, quite a few industries. Um, of course, uh, on the other side that are, um, very comfortable in certain positions and very comfortable with their cash flow uh, on, on a very sick population, let's say. Well, but even those that are very, that are very happy with their cash flow still have to innovate. And why not innovate in a way that actually benefits human health at this point? Um, because, you know, if we follow the tobacco argument, um, you know, eventually the uh, finger pointing caught up with them in a way that they actually had to pay some really meaningful fines in a way that diminished the tobacco industry um, within the I know, US but they're still around. Like it's still, yes, that's, they that's are. the, yeah. But, but look at the, how the power dynamic has changed, of course. right? Yeah, yeah. And no, so, more, no more commercials, no more marketing on Formula yeah. One and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. But what at you touched on there, yeah. no, what you touched on there is the scientific basis and, and even some allies within the regenerative movement. I'll, I've even gotten this from in weeks, recent weeks or months of, oh, that sounds right that there's more nutrition there, but where's the science? And so that's one of the very first things we did at the nutrientdensityalliance.org on our resources page. It's full is actually, of science. It's amazing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, and actually, um, um, there's other uh, sites that we link to, including, you know, Understanding Ag, your own podcast, um, you know, additional Thanks work happening. Yes. That's where the rest of the story is so people can iterate in their learning because the science, as you know, continues to be expound, expounded upon in meaningful ways. And so what we're doing now is we're trying to, rather than people have to go through the scientific papers themselves to understand what it means, we're, we're trying to do some white papers for, you know, if I'm in marketing and I need to convince my C-suite why this is real and I'm getting the science question, how do we package that in kind of an infographic and just a few paragraph ways that point to some really highly credible um, scientific peer-reviewed work that um, shows that the scientific basis is there for the companies to jump into this process. And so that's one of the reasons we're focused on the quality and regulatory process within companies, because if your legal department is not willing to sign off on the claim, it does not exist. It will never even make it in a social media post. And so we've got to make sure that people have the right framework and mindset to take to those various stakeholders within a company um, in order to make this assertion, mm -hmm. because Within any given company, there's six different departments that you need to bring along. Um, you know, if you're in procurement, you need marketing. If you're in operations, you know, you need procurement and marketing. If you're in regulatory and quality, you need the C-suite, um, you know, or sustainability. So, you know, basically, uh, or R&D, right? Like all of these different departments in these large companies have to have at least one or two people that are on board, aligning to the project, aligning to getting something in market, aligning to the claim, or it does not become real. And so that's where we're specifically show, uh, focusing our, our first initial work is how we get them over that mindset that they have to reinvent some sort of wheel to show the human health trial level of a higher antioxidant level when all they really need to do is change their specifications. <laughs> um, so that wish us luck. We're about to dive into the deep end of that work here in the next couple of weeks. Super interesting. And then a question I always like to ask, definitely inspired by John Kemp, um, I don't know if he asked it recently. I listened to a fascinating one, a conversation he had with Charles Eisenstein. Uh, but anyway, I digress. Um, where do you think different among your peers? So what do you believe to be true about regenerative agriculture that others don't? Of course, nutrient density is important. That's one thing. But um, where do you really, among your peers, think different um, and what might be surprising, let's say, to the audience? 
Yes. So I think we've already covered one of them, which is that the consumer is the missing element within the regenerative agriculture movement. That is not a standard topic of conversation across the regenerative agriculture leadership set. Um, so it's usually about the, practices. It's usually about how yes. we're going to measure soil carbon. It might be about measuring nutrient densities. Not really. It's not about water size. Like it's about a lot of other things. You're right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Back office, stakeholder engagement, scope three emissions. credits. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, not that forward-facing top-line growth. The, the other one is, and, and I'm going to veer left here on this. Um, when I was doing work last year with a climate scientist that helped uh, draft the original soil carbon protocols that Vera used for all of the global carbon offsets, um, I was doing work with him on a project that he was uh, personally passionate about, which was reintroducing native perennial grains, grasses, and legumes back into the food system that were historically eaten as food, but have essentially fallen off in our, you know, commoditized central processing mm -hmm. work. As part of that, I was leading the life cycle assessment on a perennial grain and on an organic cookie that it would have been used in. And I uncovered something that I still find just gobsmackingly shocking in a way that I'm the one that's asking the questions about this for the industry and has since blown it up to some of the world's largest philanthropic organizations to help engage them in the global conversation. But here's, here's what the, here's what this is. Here's where the gap is. The existing life cycle assessment methodology that the entire world and especially the food world is using as the baseline for their climate commitments and their understanding of what they need to do as companies, as chief sustainability officers, et cetera, is, does not include, full stop, does not include organic, perennial, regenerative, or indigenous managed lands, which by the way, you add all of those together, you're at over 50% of the food and agricultural and land management systems on the planet. And they are the ones we actually need to sustain human life. And let me explain very briefly how we got here. The life cycle assessment methodologies that are used today were originally created by the chemical industry in the 1960s. For obvious reasons, they were then bolted onto the commoditized food system as a means of understanding the chemical and um, diesel fuel uh, footprint and refrigerants and all the things of the commoditized They were never meant system. for food. They basically. were never meant for life-giving food yeah. systems. They were essentially created for like Chicago Board of Trade level of um, food systems, which is animal feed, biofuels, and derivatives like high fructose corn syrup. And so what life cycle assessment methodologies capture is field passes, diesel use, um, you know, sprays, um, uh, transportation, manufacturing, refrigerants, storage, end of life, recycling, etc. What they do not cover is the difference between a GMO beet sugar and high annual tillage versus a date palm, which is a perennial planted once every two to three decades that requires almost no inputs and also gives you sugar. The system is not set up to understand the inherent value of one versus the other. It treats them both as though they are the same. Basically, so gives your date sugar the, the footprint of the other one because it doesn't even exist. Well, because it doesn't even compare itself to anything outside of a hyper commoditized food system, because it's only whittled the criteria down to those that are in a hyper commoditized food system. And so continuous living cover, soil organic matter, climate change mitigation above, low, above and below ground biodiversity, 
these metrics, these impact of human life, downstream effects, these metrics that are actually critical for climate change mitigation and human health mitigation are not included, full stop, in the baseline systems that the food system globally is using on decision-making around mitigating climate change. And I've started to get into the right hallways with the right folks to have those conversations from a global leadership level. But originally I called up my friend uh, who's the head of the Organic Center and was like, is this right? How is this possible? Um, And by the way, uh, there is no central cache of organic LCAs. So currently the life cycle assessments for organic products uses the conventional LCA and removes Um, a couple data points and calls it good. Now here's the other risk. The organic sector in the U.S. writ large has a noose around its neck on on um, food miles because more than 70% of the organic sector in the U.S. is imported. Mm-hmm. And so when you just look at the numbers, not the, the values or the downstream effects or the um, you know, human health, it looks, or quite land, bad. Yeah. It looks <sighs> very bad in a way that's actually setting up disinvestment in the organic sector through the lens of scope three emissions reporting unless we act very, very quickly to change how the baseline measures things that actually matter for human health and not for sustaining highly efficient commoditized food systems that are actually how we got here in part in the first place. So that's my that's my soapbox inspired by the question from John Kemp, who I absolutely adore. And so I'm glad to be able to share that here with you because it's something that needs a lot more of a spotlight on it. Yeah, I remember going deep into the LCA space with Mariko, I will, Torbeck, I will put her um, interview below as well in the show notes. Um, I keep pointing below, but nobody sees that, obviously. Um, <laughs> as we really, because she was one of the writers and researchers on the White Oak Pasture, um, yep. LCA, and, and basically said, yeah, the, the positive potential of, of ag and soil, et cetera, is just not part of it at all. Um, yep. And basically you leave one side of the coin and now we see that the other side of the coin is mostly based on models and mostly based on um, uh, very, let's say, chemical intensive um, uh, numbers, which of course doesn't really help if you're running, if you're not running that system. So LCAs are never designed and uh, now we're learning it's even from the chemical industry, never designed for food space and never designed and designed for very specific quest- questions and answers. And now we use it to do run whole procurement departments, um, which is probably not a, a good use of a tool um, that, that was never designed for that. So that's yes, um, that's quite shocking. And to I'm going to shift gears a bit because this is a, not a perfect bridge, but definitely a, a relevant one. Um, as I know, you thought about this question: What would you do if you had a billion dollars to invest? <laughs> I have uh, three immediate answers to this, and and because I listened to the podcast, I, this is something I'd actually been dreaming about after I took one of an airplane ride, which is where I I listen to most of my podcasts. Um, What would I do if I had that magic wand? And um, so there's three things with broad impacts that would reverberate for generations into the future for both land and and human health. So you're combining Um, the two questions. That's a new, that's new on the podcast. That's fine as well. But like the magic wand made, like gave you a billion dollars or how how does it work? Well, yeah, you're, you're right. I am combining two questions, the magic wand with the 1 billion. So let's, let's stick with the 1 billion for a moment because I actually would wave a magic wand over something different. Um, The first would be nationwide nutrient density testing for all CPG ingredients that are already enrolled in a regenerative ag program. So create a net of instant information and kick off the competitive landscape and also the indication of which practices are providing actual benefits that consumers can see, taste, and and which they urgently need. Um, The second 
I would heavily invest in pilots for school lunches, the Veterans Affairs and Military Food Service to move to regional regenerative food systems to buffer against climate change. And I want to mention something very specific here, which I know you've heard me bring up one time before. Um, I come from a, a heavy military experience family. So this weighs heavily on my mind that in 2019, so the last uh, U.S. presidential administration, the Pentagon issued a report detailing the risks of the U.S. military collapsing by 2040 due to unmitigated effects of global climate change. Um, and that's because of regional and global fights over water, resources, etc. Um, and this weighs heavily on my mind. And so I, I tend to start with a dose of reality by thinking of if that's even 10% possible as part of my future, what would I do differently today in order to ensure I've done everything I can between now and 2040 to make sure that that is actually not the future that we're headed towards? The third one has been a dream for a while. And by the way, I'd take my billion dollars and look for philanthropic matches from across the globe so I could actually accomplish all of these things. Leverage, um, I like it, yeah. VR, VR headsets. So currently, virtual reality, kids are exposed to through gaming. And it, it risks further removing the connection between the natural world, the physical world, and the mental world um, for generations who may now live somewhat virtually in some manner for, you know, going forward or um, augmented reality, right? Um, I would want the Smithsonian or the Natural Health Museum um, to take the leadership role here of creating a immersive five-minute video and put VR headsets in every single school across America where the very first um, exposure that most kids have to that technology is actually immersing them in soil science, what uh, the mycorrhizal fungal community does, what it means for soil life, what it means for human health, what it means for everything going forward in their world. And the reason why I think that would be so impactful is because I'm married to a wonderful human and several several friends in our orbit still take their six-pack uh, rings and cut them up so that they don't get stretched across turtles' necks because they saw something as a child when they were in school, and that campaign stuck with them forever. And I think we have a very small window of time here to engage the imagination of the next generations as it relates to the natural world. And that if we miss that and they just see it as some one-off learning it, it thing later for a test, it will not have the same impact as if it's the very first exposure they ever have to virtual reality. We have one shot at this and I would really like to see us stick it. Are you excited about the, the new Apple Vision Pro? Oh, uh, I, I actually haven't gotten into that, that part of the tech within our own household yet, but, um, it's not coming out yet. It's coming, but it's, it's, it's the next level of, of it's augmented reality at the end, but it seems very yep. immersive, very expensive, obviously. Um, but yes. interesting potential. I'm, I'm more thinking, I mean, on the immersive side in terms of for children, imagination, fascinating, but also for farmers to see what's possible on their land oh, or for us to that. imagine. So yes. imagine, look at a valley. I'm looking at a valley now, uh, very green, but still like imagine what could even, because I think we lack a huge amount of imagination because we're so used to degraded landscapes and, and probably also to degraded food in terms of taste and flavor. That's why some people then travel to certain places and then eat, eat like a farm to table restaurant or something that actually is relatively fresh and get completely amazed about the quality and the flavor and, and the yes. wine and, and all of those. Um, but it's, it's that kind of moments. I think it was Victor Friedberg. One of the first episodes mentioned that what changed his life was a peach tea, a peach he tasted at a market in Valencia. 
And since yep. then in Spain and since that moment, he's like, there must be something in food because this is amazing. I have a life-changing moment with a peach. And yep. so I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking about that. How do we show potential and show how things could look like or used to, or probably we shouldn't go back to the past, but let's say back to the future. These kind of technologies could be very helpful for that, but that's a different point. It's not the imagination point, but to go down into the mycorrhizal fungi to see how the networks work and reconnect after their cut, like Toby Kears was, was sharing on, on the podcast a while ago, must be absolutely fascinating, especially if you're 10, 12, 15, also if you're 30, something like me. Um, but right. in, in general, just to trigger that, that, that soil potential. Yeah. That could be very, very interesting. Well, and it puts those learning institutions back in the driver's seat and capturing the imagination of what's possible within the natural world, which I think we've somehow lost those visceral connections that I experienced as a child through those channels. And so I would um, just love to see us, you know, kind of repair a few of those things going forward because science matters, facts matter, right? So let's show people what they're missing. And so I don't know if we answered the one billion or the, the magic wand, but we whatever the we one, didn't, the one billion. Whatever we didn't can, do yet, I, I would can love I to do the magic, magic wand. wand? Absolutely. Yes, I still have a magic wand. Okay. So um, if I had a magic wand, um, I, I honestly think this might be the only way of dealing with this issue. I would remove the mindset that the organic, perennial, regenerative, biodiverse, and indigenous food systems are solely values-based when compared to the commoditized food system, which is called science-based. And actually, the opposite is true. Because in science, you don't demonize the control portion of your global experiment. And you don't claim that the control system is anti-science. And the long-term science of what the current commoditized food system promised to deliver has not actually panned out in what the original um, you know, thesis was. And yet they demonize the control portion, which is the regenerative, biodiverse, indigenous food systems, perennials, organic, et cetera. I would love for this mindset to disappear. I think it's very detrimental to human health, and it is very anti-science for them to demonize the control portion of the planet. That's a fascinating, you promised some fascinating insights um, when I shared the questions, but that's a fascinating angle of thinking about it. Like get real, your, your hypothesis is not, your thesis is clearly not working. And so why not pay more attention to the control group that you've been demonizing, which is not really to, let's say the ethics or code of conduct of how you claim to operate. It's um, not let's pay attention based. to it. It's not science-based at all. Yeah. And I think we need to start calling that out a lot more where it's actually profit-based, not science-based because that's the Problem fallacy that, yeah. that we've been yeah. entering all of this into. Yeah. I just say, I'm, I'm hearing the mic drop basically now. Yeah. Oh dear. Can you still hear me? <laughs> no, no. In general, like it was a, it was a figurative oh, way oh. of saying <laughs> it was a figurative, not a literal. You had me worried. No, I had a tech issue all of a sudden. I know. I know. We had, we had some tech <laughs> listeners. We had some tech issues at the beginning. We didn't have them now. So this was a figure like, I'm still seeing Obama <laughs> dropping his mic at the, like the correspondent dinner. Um, uh, I don't think there's a better way to end this conversation. We could do hours and hours and we're going to do it another time for sure. But I think we had a fascinating roller coaster through science, anti-science, thesis, um, nutri nu nutritional dark matter, which I won't forget anymore. Um, and, and also how big, how food companies actually work and that a lot more is possible. Uh, with limited shelf space, with limited package space, etc. But a lot, so much more is possible than we um, now think it is. So I want to thank you, Tina, so much for the time to, for, first of all, the work you do, your excitement and coming on here to share about it. 
Yeah, thank you, Kuhn. There's so much more I could say about our partnership within the Nutrient Density Alliance, and I look forward to sharing with you more of the outcomes um, as they unfold, because there certainly is a lot more to be said. Thank you for the time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you mentioned you have a lot of exciting things coming up over the next weeks and months, etc. So I'm looking forward to checking in on that because it definitely feels like uh, something is fermentating, bubbling, etc. around this specific angle. And, and it seems like uh, there's an, an iPhone moment to stay in the technology sphere. Indeed. Well said. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links we discussed in this episode, check out our website investing in regenerativeagriculture.com forward slash posts. If you like this episode, why not share it with a friend or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts? That really helps. Thanks again and see you next time.